Hello and welcome once again to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. In a recent World Congress of Cardiology held in Spain, it was revealed that Australians who could be at risk of heart attack and stroke are not being given the same level of information by doctors compared to people in other parts of the world. To talk to me today about this, I'm joined by Dr Chris Levi, Director of Stroke Services at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. Dr Levi, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Iris. It seems quite a strong statement. Does that mean that doctors aren't making time to go into the risks that their patients are living with because of their overall workload, or is it because they don't know all the answers themselves? Well, Iris, it, it is a, a concern, but let me clarify some details about uh, that, that report and that, and that presentation. The... The key area that the GPs felt concerned about were were this growing group of patients who have multiple risk factors, people that have combinations of the classic risk factors for heart attack and stroke, that being high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, smoking, uh, overweight and a a list of others. When people have multiple overlapping risk, risk factors, the GPs reported themselves from seven countries around the world uh, that they find it difficult counselling patients about that, those clusters. They felt, in, in fact, very comfortable and quite, quite effective when they counsel patients about individual risk factors. So they're able to say to a person, for instance, you have high blood pressure, this is what you can do about it, this is what I need to do to help you ma- manage it, and this is what the risk of having high blood pressure can lead to. But if you start to add risk factors one on top of the other, it's difficult for the GPs to quantify to the patients what that really means. And the, um, the outcome of that was they're very keen for governments uh, and, um, and non-government organisations to, to assist them in this regard. And in fact, the good news is that in, in Australia, we, we are developing a tool that will help the GPs in terms of working out what the, the term absolute risk, what, what the absolute risk is for patients each, each year or each five years or each ten years of their, their life when they have these clusters of risk, of risk factors. It is a fairly complex concept um, really t- to get across to people and there needs to be a simple way of doing it and these computer-based tools are being developed to help the GPs do that. So can we just take a patient who knows that they do have a risk yep. and of having a stroke what are the individual factors that will add to perhaps it's high blood pressure? Mm. What, are the, what are the other factors? You've mentioned a few of them. Yes. Why do they, I mean, obviously because there are more of them, but why does one sit on top of the next one and, and compute so that there's more of them sort of thing? What goes on in their body? Yes, well, what, what's, what's happening with these vascular risk factors is that they're causing uh, damage to the blood vessel walls and they're resulting in... The, um, the process of atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. There are various parts of the body that are quite prone to that. The small arteries that supply the heart, the coronary arteries, the arteries that supply the brain, the um, carotid and vertebral arteries especially, and then the arteries that supply the legs, the femoral arteries and the big artery in the, in the, uh, in the, in the abdomen, the aorta. Now those arteries, those large arteries are where this atherosclerosis occurs. Atherosclerosis is an inflammatory 
disease, but high, high blood pressure, you could imagine, causes tension and, and, and irritation and damage to the vessel wall. Cholesterol, uh, when it's high in, in the blood, can leak into the wall of the vessel and causes inflammation and, and deposits in, in the vessel wall. Smoking, the toxins from cigarette smoke directly damage the vessel wall. So this, these risk factors all com compound. Now, we, we then get a situation where those vessels narrow off, form a thing called a plaque that is laden with cholesterol, and then the vessel lining, the very smooth, normal lining of the vessel called the endothelium, it ulcerates and forms a, an ulcer where blood clots then form because the blood tries to, the blood clots there because it thinks it's a hole in, in the artery, so it tries to heal it. But of course, when a blood clot forms inside an artery, it can grow and propagate and, and either occlude the artery, or in the case of stroke, what it tends to do is it forms what we call an, an embolus, and it breaks off and travels up into the brain and lodges and blocks a brain artery, uh, and that's the common cause of a stroke, where that region of brain then loses its blood, blood supply and this patient suddenly loses function, classically loses power in the face, arm or leg, loses speech, loses vision, um, and a whole lot of other potential symptoms. So, getting back to the multiple risk factors, if you have one risk factor, obviously your risk of that, that vessel damage is, um, is, is relatively lower than if you have four or five because they, they are roughly additive not quite additive, but they roughly, they're roughly additive. For, for instance, if someone's 65 years old um, and they have no risk factors, then their risk of having a heart attack or stroke is, is well less than 1% per year. So it is a very low risk. But if you have multiple risk factors, it goes up 2 3%, 3%, 5%, 10% or more. And this is the area that we need, I think, uh, more information for patients so they can look at these multiple risk factors and work out how they in interact and what their actual risk is. When, when, the, um, when the patients see, see this, I think it's quite powerful because they can see that then if they do something about the in individual risk factors, they, if they can drop off their smoking, lower their cholesterol, lower their blood pressure, they'll, they'll see their risk dropping down the scale from you know 10% per year down to 8, down to 6, down to 5, hopefully back down then to less than one where people without risk factors will be positioned. So um, the original research about uh, the, the GPs really asking for more support is really re relevant about how, how can they best counsel patients and inform them about um, what the risk factors are doing in terms of their additive effects, but more importantly what the patients can do and what the doctors can do in terms of eliminating those risk factors and then um, watching that, that risk decline over, over time. And these computer programs are going to provide people with visual um, readouts, scales, graphs, and, 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 and printouts of their risk. So they'll be able to see over, over time how they're, how they're travelling. And it puts it in a much more understandable and I think uh, much, much more relevant format for, for people than, than just sort of a, a nebulous concept that they have to try and uh, grasp and, and deal with. Listening to that, it makes me think that if a patient can actually see himself, herself, 
what they've got to start off with if they do have multiple risks and then by working on them and bring them down it registers much better than if you go to the doctor and he says oh yes but you've got to bring your blood pressure down I'm going to do this and this and you've got to do that and that if the patient can see where they're going it, it obviously is going to have much more relevance to them exactly and, and that's really the the, the message that the G, GPs uh, provided in this survey, they know that it's crucial that they get patients themselves engaged in their own self-management uh, because it's not only medications. It's, medications are a relatively, relatively small part of this. You, you, you have to have the necessary lifestyle changes. You, you have to be, be, be uh, watching your diet, watching your cholesterol and salt intake, um, exercising, getting your weight weight down. If if people uh, and stopping smoking, of course. And if people don't do that, the the drugs aren't, aren't as effective. And the, and the GPs know that that this is one of the biggest challenges that that we face. Getting people to un, understand what the risk factors mean, what they can do about them, and then giving them some incentive, as you said, Iris, to sort of watch watch that risk dropping over over time as they as they deal with their various. Um, risk factors, either by medication or lifestyle. I'm discussing with Dr Chris Levi, Director of Stroke Services at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle, the level of information given by their GPs to patients who are at risk of heart attack and stroke. Dr Levi, am I correct in thinking that the Australian doctors believe that only half of their patients who've had a stroke or heart attack are familiar with the rest of the risks that they're suffering from an uh, event? Yes, I, I, I think that's right, and not, not only are the GPs reporting that in this sur survey that was recently uh, presented, there's a lot of collateral evidence to support their, their, um, their concerns about patient knowledge of uh, risk factors and, and particularly um, some of the less well-known risk, risk factors. Um, but it's, it's generally well understood that the population as a whole has a pretty good idea about, say... Um, High, high cholesterol. High, high cholesterol has been, a, uh, I think, a, a strongly pr promoted risk risk factor, and, and people have a fair knowledge about that. They also, through through the efforts of, of governments and non-government organisations, have a good idea about smoking. And most people, especially all people now, know I think that, mm. that smoking is damaging. But if you look at blood blood pressure, there's less, there's much less uh, of an understanding of the impact of blood pressure on on health, and in the in the area of stroke, blood pressure is the preeminent risk factor. It is a factor in, in 70, 80% of our stroke patients' events. There is another hidden risk factor in, in stroke, and as I said earlier, there are some risk factors people know virtually nothing about, and the hidden risk factor for, for stroke, uh, particularly in our older folk, is a condition called atrial fibrillation, where the heart beats irregularly and results and this results in a tendency for blood clots to form in the heart and this is a silent thing and un unless people actually go for checkups and um and and have their pulse checked or have a cardiograph through their gps it isn't recognized it's present in about um five to ten percent of people over the age of 75 uh so it is very prevalent and it's one, one thing that if you identify it, or you and your doctor more so, mm. uh, but if you go and have a checkup and it's identified, then there's very effective stroke pre prevention treatment in the way of blood thinning medication to, to stop those clots forming. So there are a number of unrecognised risk factors. 
there's also quite a few emerging risk factors where we're not entirely sure how important or relevant they are. But high, high blood pressure and atrial fibrillation are certainly um, significantly under-recognised by the general population. Now, if you've got somebody who seems to think they're in reasonably good health, eat mostly the, the things they should eat, do a bit of exercise, but maybe not much, how often should these people go and consult the general public, particularly the men who tend to say, oh, well, I feel all right, I don't need to go to the doctor? Well, it, it, it varies with, with your age, um, and there are broad recommendations around this. But, but, but if you're over the age of 45, 50, you, you certainly should have uh, an annual GP review, even if you're fit and healthy. If you have any minor tendency to risk risk factors, then that should in, increase to uh, every, every six months or every four, four months have a, have a check on your, your, your blood pressure and, your, and uh, your cholesterol. If you've had vascular events, if you've had a stroke or a heart attack, um, then certainly for a period of time after those events, there, there should be a much more regular, much more regular review of all those risk factors, and and uh, obviously monitoring of your recovery and your medications and and the like. So it it, uh, it varies with again this term risk and absolute risk. If you are a low risk in, individual, uh, relatively young and, and no risk, no known risk factors, then an annual check is uh, is a reasonable thing to do. But if you're if you're then getting over the age of 45, 50, you should be looking at checks twice or even more, more often per year. Now, if someone is actually having a problem with arterial fibrillation, for example, mm. this is when the heart beats out of rhythm or, yes. or slightly faster than normal? Usually a little faster, but the hallmark is that it's quite an irregular rhythm. So instead of being a, a regular rhythm, it is... One, one beat will be followed more rapidly by another and then there'll be a gap and the next beat will be a bit later. So it's an irregular heartbeat. Now, is the patient aware of this? Usually not. Well, often not. They, they can sometimes, the patients can sometimes notice palpitation of the heart, a feeling of the heart beating a bit more rapidly or a bit, irregular, a bit more irregularly. Um, and that should lead them to go and get their pulse and their heart checked if they feel that. We all sometimes feel our heart beating when, when we, you know, uh, have a fright or a, or, or, a, or, a, or a shock or something. That's, that's, that's different. But if you are noticing it in just the normal uh, daily activities, then, then you should go and have that checked. But many people, you, you don't feel anything. And um, unless you're medically trained, uh, you know, you, you don't know how to feel your pulse. So you really need, need to go and have it, uh, have it felt by a, by a professional and checked for its regularity and if there's any doubt about it have a cardiograph very simple test now there are a few ways that we can be aware of a stroke being imminent and one of them is loss of vision temporarily or yes. permanently yes. what other things are are likely to be heading in that direction well now we're talking about um, stroke, stroke symptoms I'll say very important that um, the biggest opportunity that we have often for prevention of events are these minor stroke events or sometimes known as TIAs, transient ischemic attacks. These are a risk factor for major events and, um, and they are a very powerful risk factor such that if, if you do have a TIA or a minor stroke from which you recover within, within uh, hours, um, 
you, you can have a 10% chance in the next week of having a ma major event. That's, that's one in 10 people over the next week in some situations can have a, a major event that follows on. So what you're saying, Iris, is you've got to recognise these. Now, the, the, the hallmarks, as you said, are transient loss of function. Transient loss of vision is a common one. Uh, often in, in one eye, uh, like I sometimes described as like a curtain coming down or going across your field of view. Mm. Um, sometimes it's in one half of your field of view. Transient loss of vision out one side of, of, of your visual field. Um, and then it's transient loss of speech function. Um, that can be inability to speak, garbled speech, muddling words up, using the wrong word. Inability to understand the spoken language is a variant of that. So transient speech disturbance. Then transient weakness of face, arm or leg, usually down one side of the body, but, but, but occasionally both, both sides. Um, transient loss of balance where you become imbalanced and you, or clumsy and you can't, can't walk and you, you uh, stagger or even more significantly you actually get giddy. You get a thing called vertigo where the world's moving around. Brief ep episodes of that can be due to mi minor stroke or TIA. Transient loss of the ability to to uh, to, to swallow uh, can also be a um, a sign. But the whole hallmarks are speech disturbance, weakness, visual loss. They're the key common symptoms. That if they occur, that's uh, a TIA or minor stroke until proven otherwise. And in which case you should hightail it to the nearest hospital. Absolutely. If 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 you have these sim symptoms and they're persisting. Um, going for minutes, uh, 10, 15, 20, you, you should dial triple O and come to hospital. If you have a brief symptom that, that lasts only a matter of minutes, it's quite reasonable, I think, to, to call your GP if it's within office hours and, and, and see if you can get in for an urgent, urgent appointment and have that assessed. Mm. But it is important to assess it that day to, to get, get onto it. And if it's after hours or the GP... Um, is booked out and flat, flat out, then it's reasonable to come into the emergency department. Dr Chris Levi is my guest today and we're talking about how much knowledge the public has about heart attack and stroke. Dr Levi, according to the findings at the Congress, I understand that Australia seems to be a bit behind a lot of countries in distributing the information regarding strokes and heart attack. What can be done about this? Well, it's fair, that's a fair call. There is a lot of work to do. Um, National Peak Group, National Stroke Foundation and our New South Wales Stroke Recovery Association uh, are working hard on, on this, as, as are our governments and, and, our, and our individual practitioners. But there's a long way to go. Uh, really, stroke has been, I think, uh, in comparison to heart, heart, heart attack, relatively under-promoted in terms of its people understanding the risk factors and the warning signs. So what we know at the moment is only about a third of the population really un understand specific risk factors for stroke uh, and the warning signs. It is stroke week uh, uh, at the moment and, um, and there'll be a promotion camp campaign over the next uh, few months looking at particularly what to do if you experience any of those warning signs and the National Stroke Foundation has, is running a program called the FAST program, uh, where, where the F in FAST stands for face, weakness of your face. The uh, A stands for weakness of your arm, F-A. The mm. S stands for speech, disturbance of speech. And the T stands for this concept of time urgency. So FAST, 
means get to hospital fast, get to your doctor fast if you have face, arm or speech disturbance. So that's, that's really a, a big push this, this year, the next few months, to get people to, un to understand that. And behind that is this understanding, as we've discussed, of all the risk factors and what people can do to prevent them needing to take fast action because many, many strokes are, are, are preventable, probably two-thirds of strokes are preventable if at a population level we were able to, to really turn around a lot of these risk factors. So there, there is a lot of work going on and then the Stroke Recovery Associations are working very hard on better supporting the stroke survivors in, in our community because... Unfortunately, for those people that do survive a stroke, about a third of them have long-term permanent disabilities and, um, and uh, there's, a, there's a huge amount of work done by, by the carers and the support groups to actually help people rehabilitate and recover. So people are working hard on it, but fair call, Iris, there's a lot, a lot of work to do and we're, we're grateful for, for, for programs like, like yours to really help us get that message out. One of the things I was going to ask you is how effective do you think that programs like this and pamphlets and information in magazines and papers, do people really take that in? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I mean, I, I think the, the most powerful message, of course, is something happening to you or members of your family. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's all too common. I mean, we, we do have 50,000 strokes a year. That's one every 11 minutes in this country. So people are touched by it. People, virtually everyone will know someone who's had a stroke. But when it's close enough, that's when, obviously, the most powerful incentive to do something about it. But I think the mass media does help. It does, it does inform people. But my personal view is we need to move the whole construct back into our, our educational process for, for kids at school. So kids need to understand about vascular disease, about heart, heart attack and stroke when they're when they're aged uh, 8, 9, 10. Uh, and that's when they need to be aware of the risk factors and start to understand about health, healthy lifestyle. I guess this goes along with the idea of, of smokers, of, of informing children of the risks of smoking. So they go home and say, look, Mum, don't light up, or Dad, you shouldn't be smoking. That yeah. if you start them early enough, that hopefully it will register as they become of age to start smoking. Absolutely, and I think that there, there is evidence in, as I said, those the, the campaigns that have been really successful, like the like the Quit campaign and also the SunSmart campaign. Mm. That if you if you move your frame of reference uh, to cover the younger members of the pop population, you're probably going to have a much greater impact in the longer term. As I said, the, the National Stroke Foundation, the New South Wales Stroke Recovery Association, all the local stroke groups. Are still is still working on getting the basic messages out out there, and and uh, that is happening, and I think that is re reasonably effective. But there's a long way to go. Do you also think that people tend to play ostrich? You know, it won't happen to me. I know what could happen, but it won't happen to me. Do we still do that? No, I think we all do. I think um, I think men tend to feel a little bit more indestructible than women on the whole, and I think that's partly why. Um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there is often a re greater resistance to lifestyle change and risk factor modification in men than women. But, but uh, yeah, I think uh, we all do. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to face. And, and lifestyle changes are one of the hardest things to achieve, particularly diet and exercise. It's, it's tough. But, mm. but it all, it, you know, it, there's been a lot of research now telling us how, what a difference it can make 
in terms of not only your, your physical health, but your psychological health, your general well-being. Sometimes if you get to the stage where every time you pick up a magazine or you watch the television or whatever and you see diets, how to be slim, what you need to do, do you think that at least metaphorically we tend to turn off? You know, you're sort of bombarded with it and you think, oh, I don't want to know about that, and you turn off. Is that happening? Well, yes, I think think there's a risk of that. I think there's a... this, This whole fad diet industry uh, makes, I think, significant profits and it's um, driving some of the agenda here. I think um, I'm sure our government and our health promotion organisations are aware of that, but it's, it's tough for the, for the not-for-profits and it's tough for the public spending groups to compete with that. And I think you're right. I think there is a risk that, that uh, some of this stuff that people, I think, perhaps intuitively recognise is a bit shonky, uh, it, mm. it can turn, turn them off. But... But I think the strong messages about healthy lifestyle, about risk factor recognition, about risk factor management, still, you know, we still um, should continue to to promote them, but broaden our our scope and get get the kids involved and get get them to un- understand this stuff. Overall, would you think that we're having an epidemic of strokes these days? Well, if you look at the the uh, stroke incidence data in in Australia. It's fairly level at the moment. There, there, there isn't a huge growth, and in fact, the stroke mortality data is encouraging because there's been a reduction in mortality. But that doesn't necessarily mean there are less strokes occurring. We do need to reduce stroke in incidence if we're going to reduce the burden of stroke, because what's happening with our population, as I'm sure most of the listeners are aware, our population is ageing. We have an increasing proportion of patients, or sorry, people in the older age brackets where they are more stroke prone. So we have to actually reduce the incidence of stroke just to keep our current burden of stroke in status quo. If we do not, then the actual numbers of people in Australia having strokes will increase. And there have been some projections done such that if we don't reduce the incidence of stroke, we'll go from around 50,000 strokes a year in Australia, which which we're running at the moment, up to over 70,000 strokes a year over the next 10 years. So we must do something about incidents. The good news is that there is some, some work uh, actually out of the UK, out of Oxfordshire, that has shown that, that with modern general practice and, and modern drug, drug therapies and, and um, you know, good, good clinical care, the incidence of stroke has dropped significantly. We don't have that length of data in, in, in Australia. There's only, been, there's only been one serial incident study in Australia. That was over in Perth, and that showed the incidence was fairly level over a 10-year period. In the Hunter, where, where we are, we've looked at our stroke, at stroke attack rates. And people presenting to hospital with stroke over the past 10 years, from 95 to 2005, mm-hmm. and it's been fairly level. Uh, so we haven't seen uh, a significant reduction, but we haven't seen a, a sort of an escalation. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're holding it at bay, and maybe we're just starting to win. But it, it's the poor old GP who's in the front line of this. He's mm-hmm. the guy who's out there... Um, doing all the health health promotion, and I really take my hat off to them. Very briefly, where do we go from here? Well, I think um, fixing stroke is, is uh, has been has, fixing the problem of stroke has been an, an analogy. It's like a chain of survival. So what you have to do is you have to obviously prevent as much as you can before a stroke occurs. So that's what we've been talking a lot about today. 
But then if, if an event occurs, if someone has a stroke-like event or a, or a, or a mini-stroke and they, they need to recognise it, they need to follow the FAST rule, that is with a face, arm, speech involvement, then time is of the essence, they get to hospital, they dial, dial triple O if it's, a, if, if it's a significant persistent problem, they get to hospital and the hospital manages, manages them in an expert stroke care unit. And many of our hospitals, most of our major hospitals in New South Wales now, now have these units. We're fortunate in the Hunter. We have units, at, uh, expert stroke care units at, at John Hunter, Marta, Belmont and Maitland Hospital so we can, we can deal with and give the patients the best treatment when, when they arrive. A small proportion of patients who arrive very early, we can give strong clot-dissolving medication, which is, a, which is good if we get them early. So, so that's an, a small group of patients. But all of them get expert care, and then there's the rehabilitation and the community care. So it's a chain right from prevention right through to the, to the community and to getting people back, back on their feet. And if we do all the links in, in the chain correctly, we will start to reduce the burden of stroke. But you can imagine uh, that that's a huge effort. And uh, fair to say in the Hunter at the moment, we've, we've got most of our links you know, working t together strongly. We've got our, our prevention strategies. We're working through our GPs. We have our ambulance service ge geared up. We've got our stroke units. We're delivering the therapies. And we've got our re rehab units and our community care. So we've got most of our links in, in place, but that's not to say we can't improve them. And that's what we've, we've been, have been working on and we will be working on probably for most of my working life. Dr Levi, thank you very much for talking with me today. That's a pleasure, Iris, and thanks for having me on. My guest today has been Dr Chris Levi. He's the Director of Stroke Services at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. This has been Wellbeing. Thank you for listening. Until the next time we meet, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of all the team wishing you well.